0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, August 6th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We catastrophize nonsense, yet act nonsensically in the face of true catastrophe. That is true, but I will get to it later. There is a spiel for that. So I have lots of strong thoughts about what we should do with guns. By the way, we won't. In a Democratic-controlled Senate, after Sandy Hook, two measures failed. One, Dianne Feinstein sponsored this bill. Obama urged it on. It failed horribly, 40 to 60. That was a ban on certain kinds of semi-automatic rifles and large-capacity magazines. Nope, wouldn't want to do that. Again, 40 to 60. Current presidential candidate Michael Bennett was in the 60 that voted against it, by the way. another measure actually did get a majority of the senators, 54, but it needed 60 votes to pass. This was a background check bill. Now, among the senators that voted against it were four Democrats. They were all from reddish or purplish states. And guess what? They all lost re-election, or in the case of Max Baucus, declined to run again. The other three were Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, Mark Pryor of Arkansas, Mark Begich of Alaska, and they combined to lose their next election by 29 points. So then you had a Democratic Senate, a Democratic president, and the victims were six-year-olds and nothing happened. This time we have a Republican Senate, a Republican president, and the victims were largely Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Good luck. Yesterday, I conversed with a professor who said the forces of gun control, of some gun control, of any gun control, need to engage in outreach, an understanding, to engage with members of the other side. The conversation, I'll self-assess, it went essentially nowhere, and I thought that the only benefit of airing it was to demonstrate that it went nowhere. I think the professor had a misassessment of United States politics, we don't need outreach. What we need is Democrats in seats in the national legislature. And I'm not a very partisan guy, or I wouldn't be if there was sanity on both sides. But this is clearly what we need. Because Democrats in those seats will become votes, and those votes will become law. And then what will happen is the laws will pass. They will work. There won't be a panacea, but they will have a good effect like they did during the assault weapons ban from 94 to 04, a good measurable effect. And the other thing that will go on is that no one will have their shotgun taken away. No one will have their handgun used to protect their home or business taken away. No semi-automatic long guns will be denied. In fact, no one's going to have any guns taken away. It'll be a buyback program to work. And then years later, they will say, or at least those honest enough to make a self-assessment or not diluted by groups like the NRA, they will look back and say, oh, I guess they really didn't want to screw with my hobby after all. No, we don't. We really don't. You might not believe us. We would just like to save a few lives in the process. I've given up on convincing Americans who are steeped in our gun culture of the good intentions of the people outside of it. Let us instead rely on proof of concept after the fact. But all of this will clearly not come to pass with the Houses of Congress as they are currently assembled. And it might not take just one election. It might take a couple, given the primacy of rural states in our system and the composition of the Senate as it stands. So again, I say, good luck. It's what most of us are relying on to stay safe. On the show today, in the spiel, perhaps you heard, we catastrophize nonsense, yet act nonsensically in the face of catastrophe. That is true. I will detail that. But first, the U.S. has labeled China a currency manipulator. This could be a catastrophe. Probably not. Probably more a symbol of our mismanaged trade partnership. But make no mistake, the outcomes of this decision, eh, maybe decision, maybe you want to call it a spasm, but the outcomes of this entire trade war could have deep consequences for all of us. The estimable Jordan Weissman is up next to discuss. <laughs> At the gist have a couple of steadfast beliefs. Number one, we don't believe in labels. Number two, we believe that you can't be manipulated. Only you can allow yourself to be manipulated. So what do we do with the news that the United States has labeled China a currency manipulator? It flies in the face of all our beliefs. So in times like this, what I like to do is reach for Jordan Weissman, who covers all things economics for Slate. Jordan, hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I think I said in a Slack channel, you are a treasure the other day. Did you get that no, when I, I said that to you? You should have added it. Was, it, was during, it was during debate. What happens is I watch the debate and then I go back and read the Slack channels. And sometimes I put comments in hours after the fact. And everyone was talking about optics or what, how stupid someone else was. And every once in a while on an economic policy, you would chime in like, he happens to be right. And I'm like, Jordan, you're a treasure. <laughs> Thank you. So I mean that. So let's talk about... If only the readers always felt that yes, way. Yes. Let's talk... Well, you know, there is, there is the economy of telling people what they want to hear versus what's true. So I guess what Trump wanted to hear was that China is a currency manipulator. Before we get to the judgment, if they are, let's just talk about some basics. Yeah. China's an exporter, which means if the value of its currency is low versus the dollar, that's good for China mostly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, I mean this it's complicated. Mm-hmm. But for the most part China is still an export-based economy and as a result it likes to keep its currency relatively cheap. I think it's it's more fair to say they like to keep it stable now. There was definitely a time like in the early to mid 2000s when China did everything in its power to keep the value of its currency down. Right. When it re- it used and it basically did this by just intervening aggressively, outlandishly
0: (laughs) in the foreign exchange markets. In, in world economic terms, that time period was about when Trump started The Apprentice.
1: Yeah. That was true. And where all of his impressions about right. the current state of the U.S. economy were formed and fixed.
0: Right. <laughs> and, and the phrase currency manipulator, <laughs> yeah. that's an insult. We know that that seems strong to say I'm going to label you a currency manipulator. So it's a thing he'd always say. And for a time, he was right. I mean, it was true.
1: Yes, it was absolutely true. that China, And really fit the classic definition of a currency manipulator and I think that's right. important what, what it, because countries do all sorts of things that affect their currency whenever the federal reserve does monetary policy right. that affects the value of the dollar right. the idea of a currency <laughs> manipulator though right is that it's a when a country systematically intervenes to basically give itself an unfair advantage in trade that's really what you're talking doing it over and over again as a matter of policy and you know from the year 2000
0: to kind of the era of the great recession that's pretty much what china was mm-hmm. doing what is a tariff? By the, isn't a tariff uh, sort of an indirect currency manipulation?
1: A little bit, yeah, yeah. That's not that's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It's
0: best I can hope for. No, so it's, it's other things, but it does have the element of that. It's imposing some sort of artificial cost on well, so, another currency.
1: Yeah, well, no. So here's what happens when you put a ta- it when the United States puts a tariff on Chinese televisions or or whatever. Right. Here's what happens. In theory. China should probably sell fewer televisions to the U.S. The U.S. should probably buy fewer televisions from China. Now, there are a lot of other things going on, but as a result, let's just say China's exports go down, and as a result, demand for its currency goes down. Its currency should actually get weaker, mm-hmm. whereas if the U.S. is importing less, the value of the dollar should actually go up. So actually, yes, yeah. by, and that is one of the things going on here, is that not only has China been stepping in to defend the value of its currency— A lot of the policies that the Trump administration has embraced, like slapping tariffs left, right and center all over the Chinese, (laughs) literally every good now that they sell, have actually been pushing it down.
0: Yeah. And Donald Trump is upset or mad or one of the reasons he issued this as a punishment because China reneged on some farm purchases. But this is a rational reaction to tariffs, isn't it? Well,
1: I mean... uh, I mean, this trade war is just like a mess, right? Like yeah.
0: I mean, like, but it seems like Donald Trump now is imposing, uh, trying to impose a sanction based on the facts that fact that he imposed sanctions and he likes the tit, but he doesn't like the tat. There's so much tit and tat. Here, here's what kind of happened this week: is that Donald
1: Trump got mad because U.S. and Chinese negotiators met, they weren't making headway. It looked like China decided it wasn't actually going to buy some soybeans that it said it would buy before. Our president got pissed off and he responded by saying, Fine, we're going to throw 10% tariffs on all the other goods we haven't already put tariffs on. Right. And, and you got to remember, you've just got like two macho guys in a room in a staring contest, right? You've got Donald Trump who does not like to lose or says he doesn't like to lose. And you've got the Chinese who are all about saving face and projecting strength on, on the world stage. So neither feels like they can back down. So what does China do in this situation? Well, they look at these tariffs and say, We're going to, okay. Tap. <laughs> we're gonna tap. So they they say, okay, we're gonna suspend agricultural purchases, or we're gonna tell uh state owned companies not to buy your soybeans. And then beyond that, they suddenly allowed the yuan to fall below this symbolically important marker. They basically seven. Seven, right? I mean like what happens if it falls below seven? Like I mean, it you know, they six and a half. becomes six and a half. This is like the, 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 he, the psychologically important yeah, exactly. like, ten thousand Dow yeah, or whatever. It's you know. like, you know, the heavens don't open up, fire doesn't descend from the skies. Right. Like, you know, it's not the end of the world. They're but not really a
0: dragon. Yeah, yeah. It's
1: right. <laughs> but they, they let it fall past, past this this mark this mark that the that investors considered really important. When I say let, they basically sort of said, eh, you know, it's gonna fall lower today. We're not gonna step in. Um And so what you could say is they actually chose not to manipulate it, right? They didn't manipulate it enough. They didn't push it up enough for the Trump administration's taste. Um, And this really ticked off our president again. And so he now responded by saying we're going to call them a manipulator officially, which is something that no president has previously done.
0: It does seem to me that tariffs are, you know, a big uh, frontal assault in this war, like a big, huge deal. And then the tariff negotiation label is this like, Tiny little pinprick of a non-impactful skirmish. There was a time when calling China a currency manipulator, if it happened during the Obama administration, would have been a bit like declaring war or the intent to go to war. Right. right? But the war would be a tariff war. So you could imagine, oh my God, there might be some steps where some amount of Chinese tariffs would be susceptible to a 10% fee. Now it's all of them and it's already in place. Yeah, it's already happened. It's like if one day
1: we swept into uruguay and just you know just strafed the whole country bombed it like and then a week later like oh by the way we're also going to declare war right that's just sort of like wait you already you already lit the whole country on fire like what what why are you bothering to declare war now and that's that's sort of what it feels like is happening now it's like well but you can also see you know i'm sure there's some emotional release here for for the president and you know, frankly, um, I I also sort of imagine maybe this is something his advisors thought would be a smart way to placate him without too many repercussions. Yeah. Because, right, like, he's pissed off because China allowed its currency to fall in response to his tariffs, thus neutralizing some of their effect. Should you have been
0: surprised by that, no, by absolutely, the way? It's a absolutely. rational response. I, yeah, yeah.
1: And, and to be fair, China probably can't allow its currency to fall forever. There actually are limits on that. Mm-hmm.
0: So I guess the wise people always say, look, China was— giving it to the U.S. in some ways and unfairly trading, were there actual ways to bring them to heel short of a tariff war that weren't used, do you think? Back then? Well, when, when Hillary Clinton came into, if she had come into office instead of Trump and certainly wouldn't have engaged in a tariff war, would I, so, okay. if she really wanted to be tough on China but yeah. didn't want to go the route of tariffs.
1: You're getting at my fundamental problem with Trump's trade policy right now. So let's, I'm going to zoom out a little yeah. bit here. I think this could, it could have been handled differently. Tariffs probably would have been part of it. But there were kind of two ways Donald Trump could have decided to approach trade when he came into office. He could have decided to kind of get a, a an Avengers team together, right? Mm-hmm. He could have teamed up with the European Union and other countries, you know, maybe Canada, and all gathered together and brought pressure down on China and said – If you don't fix some of your policies when it comes to things like intellectual property and maybe your currency regime, you know, if if there was something wrong with it at the time, we are going to collectively as a whole start imposing tariffs on X products, steel, whatever, right? That would have been an approach. The other approach – was to just start a war with everyone at once to go after Germany and go after China and go after Mexico and go after Ch- and, and go and go after Canada, and, and, which is what he did do. Which is what he did do. Yeah, exactly. And so personally, I, you know, and some people say the the Avengers approach wasn't realistic. Yeah, but I, I'm personally convinced that it would have had a lot better chance of succeeding and actually extracting some sort of concessions from China than. What we did do, which was try to fight everyone at once, and so we ended up with no real allies, and we don't actually individually have as much leverage over any one country as Donald Trump thought.
0: What do you, He does, so, so Trump does seem to take um, a, a lot of pride in the fact that the market has gone up during his presidency, not as much as during Obama's presidency, sure, fine, yeah. but he points to that a lot. It doesn't, it makes sense, you know, he's a businessman from the 80s and the Dow Jones industrial average means a lot. Do you think a consistent market signal that this is the bad move will affect his thinking?
1: I, I thought it would at some point. Yeah. But, like, it hasn't broken through yet, right? Because, like, what seems to happen is that you have these kind of conflagrations, right? You have these moments where the trade war flares up and it turns into, like, a real hot war. Mm -hmm. And the market freaks out. Yeah. And then things seem to cool off. And it always comes back. And it's it's like it was a buying opportunity. And and so I think—I kind of wonder if Trump is taking the wrong lesson from that. If instead of realizing that the market— recovers when it thinks that maybe he's finally given up on this whole trade war thing. Yeah. He thinks that this is just momentary and I can go, this is actually a signal that I can keep fighting this trade right. war. So it's hard to tell what how he interprets this, if he interprets. Also, trying to psychoanalyze Trump is is always, you know, from a distance, is, is always a tricky thing. Right, but, right. You know, I it, think, there's this weird
0: thing yeah. we're saying, what would be the logical thing for him to do based on this very illogical right. uh, policy in the first place? You know,
1: if he were, I would say that If Trump took his own rhetoric about the stock market seriously and really considered the stock market sort of the report card for his administration's performance on the economy, he would lay the fuck off. Yeah. What he's doing. But he's not.
0: I'm not gonna ask you unless you want to say where you think this is going, but give me some possible routes and some sense of the likelihood. Okay, wait,
1: can I give you the worst case scenario? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Because actually predicting
1: anything is very hard. Right. So, you know, we're we're talking just now about how markets are freaking out and what are they freaking out possibly. I think the worst-case scenario at this point is that this tit-for-tat tac toe between China and the U.S. keeps going on. And China eventually decides, you know what? it, We are just going to let our currency fall. We are going to let it devalue as far as
0: possible to really counteract these tariffs and show Donald Trump what happens mm-hmm. if you. And they they are not a democracy. They are a dictatorial country. Blowback from the populace not as important in yeah. China as in the United States. The, the blowback in that scenario would probably come from sort of like
1: the wealthier corporate class yes. um, who don't want to see like their US their dollar denominated debt become unpayable among other problems, mm-hmm. but. Still, yeah, the 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 fact that China is an authoritarian country does kind of give it a little bit of an edge here. And one reason why Donald Trump might be a little bit envious. Um, but so let's say China just kind of lets its currency drop. What you might see at that point is that other countries in Asia look and go, oh, shit, well, we also have to let our currencies drop because there's no way we can be competitive yeah. if China's has fallen this far. So you start to see competitive devaluations and you see cur- you see a, a, a war between the U.S. become a global currency war, which is just kind of generally destabilizing that – yeah. you know,
0: a small version of that happened like four years ago, right? There was a
1: little bit of that. Yes. There was fears about And like every, a lot of people in the financial markets have very, very scarring memories of the mid-90s emerging markets crisis where currency crises became financial crises. Yes, Not necessarily the kind of thing that would happen, but it's probably in the back of some people's minds. At the same time, what would happen is if you have all of these currencies across the rest of the world falling in value, the dollar's probably going up, which then hurts our exports hurts a lot of American businesses. And as a result, that could further destabilize. That could hurt our economy. And so y- you could see how all of this, you know, snowballs and maybe knocks us off a cliff and pushes us into that recession people have been worrying about. Mm-hmm. And that the financial markets have already been signaling might be coming. So I think that is actually a possible worst case scenario. Will that happen? Oh, I mean I t- at this point donald trump apparently isn't even listening to any of his advisors on trade he's just making calls on his own the only person who thought these last round of tariffs was a good idea was peter fucking navarro uh, who like everyone else told him not to do it so I, you know the president's on tilt man yeah yeah who okay knows? so what's
0: another scenario you know trump
1: and uh, she find a way to kind of save face by making some agreements over agricultural purchases and slowly but surely de-escalate things and this becomes kind of a, a cold war up until 2020 at which point either Donald Trump you know feels then he can negotiate once the election is done
0: or there's a new president in power mm. who can do something a little bit more sane so there we have it the tit for tat Tac the tic-tac-toe toe. Donald Trump is cross It looks like he's got naught. Jordan Weissman is the Slate Money Guy. Thanks a lot, Jordan. (laughs) Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. We catastrophize nonsense, yet act nonsensically in the face of true catastrophe. The catastrophizing of nonsense happens all the time, every day, day in, day out, in the churn of that neurologically potent outrage machine we all have in all of our pockets. It's about Christmas greetings and caravans and casting decisions. There's appropriation police Twitter, there's Scarlett Johansson police Twitter. There's Scarlett Johansson casting appropriation police Twitter. There's a lot of nonsense, almost too much nonsense to pay attention to. But let us talk about the nonsense that has sprouted up to answer our current catastrophe. So after Democratic politicians rightly suggested policy changes, conservative politicians and figures criticized them for politicizing the tragedy. This is like criticizing a pastor for moralizing or criticizing a newspaper columnist for opining or maybe even criticizing a shoemaker for cobbling together a solution. I mean, someone has got to. And if the politicians are barred from politicizing, I suppose we have to rely on the private sector. By the way, the charge of politicizing, I find more often flows from right to left, but not always. But it is a weak charge for all the reasons that I've laid forth. You know, if you complain that a politician is unfairly trying to push through bad policies during a time of shock or mourning there are more potent ways to phrase this than the mere charge of politicizing something you could say if it's accurate you could say he's demonizing a population you could say you're demagoguing and i don't love turning the the noun into the verb but that's in vogue these days. You're demagoguing the issue. Merely you're exaggerating. You could say you're lying if the politician is indeed lying. It's important to call to account people who are lying. After 9-11, we needed to firm up airport security, right? That was true. It was the proper response. And to say so, if you were a politician, to support legislation, was politicizing that issue, was it not? We enacted a policy now, what we tried to do, and not always successfully, was not to demonize all Muslims, not to lie about what our vulnerabilities were, but we wanted to come to a proper, sensible solution that was, of course, a political one because we live in a democracy, so we politicized it. Ron McDaniel, chair of the GOP, saw Beto O'Rourke interviewed on CNN by Jake Tapper. Do you think President Trump is a white nationalist? Yes, I, I, I do, and again, uh, from some of the record that I just recited to you, the, the things that he has said, both as a, a candidate uh, and then as the president of the United States. O'Rourke went on to add, so, so, again, let's be very clear about what is causing this and who the president is. He is an open, avowed racist and is encouraging more racism in this country. And this is uh, incredibly dangerous for the United States of America right now. All of us have a responsibility to stand up and be counted on this issue. McDaniel tweeted this. A tragedy like this is not an opportunity to reboot your failing presidential campaign. This is disgusting and wrong. That was McDaniel's only tweet the day after the El Paso gunman slaughtered over 20 Texans and Mexicans. Yes, I agree in that something going on here is disgusting and wrong. O'Rourke, by the way, was a congressman from El Paso, a city councilman in El Paso. His family lives in El Paso. His kids go to school in El Paso. He actually dropped campaign events elsewhere to go back to El Paso, which was entirely appropriate, and he gave what I would regard as an honest and largely accurate answer to Jake Tapper's question. I don't expect the GOP chair to say anything different about anyone who criticizes President Trump, especially because she essentially serves at the pleasure of President Trump, but you could just sense the relief, the, oh, this at least gives me something to say, Someone to attack. And it is, in fact, nonsense. Such nonsense. The hopes and prayers. The critiques that gun laws would be both outrageously unconstitutional at the same time, totally ineffective. The admonitions not to talk about the latest tragedy. That we're never told when the moratorium is lifted. Can we talk about the last tragedy? Can we talk about Gilroy? Can we talk about Virginia Beach, Thousand Oaks, Tree of Life? Santa Fe High School, Las Vegas, Pulse Nightclub, San Bernardino, Fort Hood 1, Fort Hood 2, the Navy Yard, Umpqua Community College. Tell me when we could break the seal. Can I politicize Sandy Hook, the Sikh Temple, the Aurora Movie Theater, Gabby Giffords? Can we politicize a shooting when the actuarial tables tell us the victims would have died of natural causes anyway? What about some of those post office shootings in the 80s? What about the McDonald's shooting in San Ysidro? I'm not much interested in these so-called answers that are really, really obvious means of deflection, pseudo-sophisticated refusals to engage in the right questions. I'm also not too keen right now on being pulled away from these thoughts to consider 30 to 50 feral hogs. I'm not offended by joking. I'm never offended. I'm really not. But why this bit of whimsy? that seems forced upon us by a hive mind that elevates a weird, imminently ignorable statement by a nobody. It's just another blip of info grasping for our attention. Don't need it. Also, hashtag cancel the New York Times. Twitter telling us the New York Times has weathered a controversy. I'll read read the Twitter description. New York Times faces uproar over its Trump urges unity versus racism headline. That, by the way, is a literal description of what the, what the president urged. He is full of shit. It took until the second or third paragraph of that story to figure out that the Times was saying he's full of shit. I'll read from the actual story right there on the front page of the New York Times. They noted it seemed unlikely that Trump's comments, quote, would reposition him as a unifier when many Americans hold him responsible for inflaming racial division. Not a good headline. C minus D plus Let's go with D+. AOC got 100,000 retweets in criticizing the New York Times. Yeah, it was a bad headline. The Times said it was a bad headline. And what's the uproar? It's nonsense. I don't mind press criticism, but what it really is is pretty obvious. It's a chance to channel our rage at a source that is actually responsive. The Times changes its headlines. Our country is incapable of changing our laws. Perhaps you've sensed that I am, if not rageful, a little harsher today than my usual equanimous self. <laughs> I would not normally begrudge a hog digression of any sort. But it's just that I have been thinking a lot about our habit of catastrophizing nonsense and offering nonsensical solutions to true catastrophes. It seems like the second part of that equation is worse. I mean, we're talking about true catastrophes it means we're unable to rise to the occasion but I do find that the first part that daily onslaught of the silly masquerading as the severe it holds our attention and it desensitizes us or habituates us it's like a giant social exercise and crying wolf it is day in day out it is annoying it is trying it is distracting we all have that friend or had that friend when we were younger and less wise about whom we would say something like, well, you know, he, he is there for you when you need him. But what about all the other times when he is there too much in ways you don't want him, creating mini dramas, causing trouble, spreading a bit of self-serving discord? It wears you down. So if you're smart, if you've grown a little, if you figure out how to navigate this world, you push him away or maybe you should out of self-preservation. Something like that is going on here. I don't know, in fact, if there is much interplay between these two things, between catastrophizing nonsense on the one hand and nonsensically dealing with catastrophe on the other. It would be a really clean theory if one led to the other. Maybe they don't. Maybe in isolation, they're unrelated dysfunctions, one wearying, the other deeply worrying. But in tandem... They don't offer much hope that we as a society, a society which relies on politics, have the means to properly deal with our biggest challenges, which includes deciding which challenges aren't really that big at all. And that's it for today's show. Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. They enjoy tic-tac-toe but wonder about these ticky-tac tactics and if the administration can engineer a tariff tack-back in the face of blowback. What Next has an excellent episode today. I heard it in the gym about the San Francisco shooting that inspired the 1990s through 2004 assault weapons ban. Good history, good analysis. The Gist. I once asked my son if he knew what a tactic was, and he said, yes, it's the opposite of a Tic Tac. It's a really large candy that makes your breath worse. It's a free idea for all you candy makers out there. Oomperoo deproodoo Peru, and thanks for listening.